One of the persistent heroes of philosophically minded folks is Socrates, the godfather of question askers, the Athenian philosopher, the drinker of hemlock. Although the Platonic dialogues never present him as entirely averse to speech making, nonetheless Socrates in the Apology famously describes himself as one who doesn't relay divine wisdom to mortals so much as he asks questions of mortals who claim to be wise. As he calls for the wisdom of rhetoricians, poets, statesmen, and all sorts of men in Athens into question, Socrates sets the table for his own demise, making himself perhaps the most famous martyr for question asking. Now Matthew Lee Anderson, who is the author of Earthen Vessels and more recently of The End of Our Exploring, which we'll be talking about today, wants to maintain the honor of the good question by calling into question the questions of questionable character. So as he joins me today on Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be the one asking the questions and he'll just have to give me some answers. So Matthew, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. That was a great intro. Oh, thank you, thank you. I I, I wish I could say I worked hard on it, but I was largely riffing there. Um, <laughs> first of all, this is a 2013 book for the sake of our listeners. It's a very recent one at the recording of this podcast. And Matt, nobody writes a book in a vacuum, so tell our listeners about the events and the conversations and perhaps even the questions that led you to write The End of Our Exploring. And if you don't cite T.S. Eliot somewhere in there, I'm going to be terribly disappointed. <laughs> well, that's, that's helpful guidelines. I appreciate that. Um, you know, it's, there, there's two stories, really. Uh, the first starts a decade ago when I entered Biola University's Tory Honors Institute, which is a um, great books program. And uh, I, I spent hundreds of hours sitting around uh, with peers and with faculty talking about big ideas and hard questions. Um, it's a great educational experience for me. I, I had a, a wonderful time in it. But I also spent a lot of time uh, in the middle of class thinking about what we, what we were doing, what was going on, and trying to figure out how I could be a better contributor to the conversations that we were having. So I, I, I spent a lot of time just thinking about method. Um, and uh, I got to be pretty good at what we were doing. So much so that when I um, left Tory, I went and taught high school for a couple years and taught in, entirely Socratically. Um, really enjoyed that. And uh, then uh, set about actually working with churches and with other organizations, helping them uh, train people to lead discussions better. So I had worked on this for a long time and actually had wanted to write a book that um, took all of that experience and that was something like a manual for small group leaders within the church that would help them uh, ask questions better so that they could have better conversations so that people wouldn't be bored out of their minds. Uh, I, you know, I grew up within the evangelical church. Um, small group was a regular feature of my life, and that meant a lot of misery and suffering. Um, uh, it, you know, there were always these prepackaged questions that we would talk about, um, and, you know, the, the, the leader would ask them and we'd try to figure out which answer he was looking for. Um, and if we came up with it, great. And if not, then, you know, it was miserable. Um, but it wasn't a real conversation. And, and so 
I hated that. Um, and so wanted to uh, spend some time helping churches and others work to improve that. But over the last few years, I, I, I have grown increasingly interested in uh, the retrieval of doubt as a category. Um, a lot of people are talking about the place of doubt within the Christian life and within the church and trying to rehabilitate that. There's a lot of about that that I like, but I also think there's just a lot of sloppiness there. And so I really wanted to uh, write something that would address that. And so the, those sort of two streams came together in this book. Now, T.S. Eliot, of course, is um, uh, sort of pervades how I think about these things. Um, I've sp I spent a lot of time with the four quartets um, in the middle of my undergrad experience and um, uh, just really deeply resonated with uh, what he does there. It, 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 it has affected how I think about searching and exploring and questioning in ways that I, I'm not sure I fully understand. Um, and so when it came time to, to find conceptual vocabulary to, to put some of these out there, um, I just didn't have another place to go that was going to be as deeply rooted for me as, as um, the four quartets. So that's, that's kind of where that came from. Well, that's interesting, Matt, because one of the things that uh, certainly was part of my early experience with questions was actually a, a very similar education at uh, Milligan College. Uh, it wasn't exclusively Socratic, but certainly the classroom sessions I remember best are the ones where we did dig into whatever questions the discussion led to. So uh, I can certainly resonate with that experience. Uh, also, I and I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but one of the first interview subjects on Christian Humanist Profiles was Fred Sanders, so mm. uh, we're, we're very Biola-heavy so far on this podcast. <laughs> Fred, yeah, and Fred's a genius. Um, we just have to recognize that um, <laughs> uh, a, a big part of my uh, thinking and my approach to these things has really heavily been influenced by him and by the other folks there at Tory. In some ways, uh, I felt a little bad because I went and wrote this book and um, Fred and the other folks out at Tory probably should have done it instead. I, it, it would have been, uh, I think, better and uh, more well done had they taken it up. But, you know, I just got there first. So. Well, I did note in your uh, acknowledgement section, you actually do issue them a challenge to do a better version of this. So I, I appreciated that. <laughs> it's true. They haven't taken me up on it yet. So, But that's not an, a, a sort of silent endorsement that they couldn't do better. I'm sure they could. All right. Very good. Well, Matt, one of the, the core concepts that you relate to the practices of question asking is negative space. Uh, I want you to tell our listeners about that a bit, uh, but try to use Caravaggio instead of the FedEx logo as you do so. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but the FedEx logo is just such a great example of this. Um, <laughs> right, use FedEx if you must. And it's, and it's one that you know is a part of everyone's day-to-day -day lives. Um, so in the FedEx logo, uh, and I, I went years of my life without seeing this, um, uh, between, oh, now... Uh, the E and the X, um, there's a space between that's actually an arrow, and the arrow is pointed to the right. Um, and, uh, you know, I've read a couple pieces on the history of this logo and why they did it uh, that way, and it's meant to signify that, that obviously they're a shipping company, and so they're getting their packages to you, but it's also a sense of forward progress. But 
that the, the arrow in between is not there in one sense. It's formed exclusively by the surrounding E and the X, and that's what um, people call negative space. Um, and my, my, the, I use the image or use the concept to uh, talk about how when we question, we have this sense of something that's not there. We have a, a negative space that we're trying to figure out what belongs there. We may have a sense of the outline around it. We may have a sense that uh, there's something important that fits into that, but, um, but mostly it's an awareness that there's something that's not there. Um, and so the question is aimed at doing that. It's, it's, it's been a helpful image for me to think about what questions are doing that are unique. All right. Uh, one of the things that intrigued me about the book, and I'll just put it that way to start off with, uh, <laughs> is the fact that you put the practice of question asking in, a, in sort of Aristotelian terms. So you have an excess and you have a deficiency. Uh, on the one hand, there are those that you describe for whom any question not approved beforehand is a sign of rebellion against rightful authority. And then on the other side, uh, whether you want to label it excess or deficiency, there are those for whom any reserve in question asking, any reticence to ask a question is a sign of sort of intellectual slavishness. Uh, as you wrote this book and as you teach in the context where you teach, how do you attempt to navigate that Aristotelian mean of question asking? Yeah, um, that's very astute of you to pick that up and, and to hear the Aristotelian underpinnings there. Um, I'd even go a step further even and, and um, use something like a Thomistic framework. Um, uh, Thomas and, and the medievals really more broadly uh, had four, I think it was four criteria for the rightness of an action. Mm -hmm. An action had to be um, have the right intention. Um, it had to have the right form. It had to have the right circumstances. And there's a fourth one that I always forget. Um, <laughs> but uh, I use this. Uh, I, I have used this internally to think about how to differentiate what uh, di differentiate good questions from bad questions. So questions have to have the right intention. Um, we need to know what end we're seeking in the question, and that end has to be the right end. Um, if we're asking a question to make a fool of someone, uh, that's an uncharitable thing to do. And even if it's a, a, an otherwise legitimate question, that makes it a bad question. Um, the circumstances matter a lot. If you, know, you were to ask me about um, my thoughts on cheese in the middle of this interview, um, it would be weird. It wouldn't fit the circumstances, right? Uh, and it would be, in that sense, a, 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 an ill-fitting question. Um, uh, I've forgotten the others. Um, so <laughs> there you have it. Uh, but those are the sorts of... How about the form? Yeah, so the form. That's right. Um, so if the form of the question... Um, it, forms of questions, they, 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 they do things. The, the words that get chosen... Uh, to express what it is that we're seeking, direct our attention to certain uh, places and, and away from other places. Um, and this one is the most nebulous of all the criteria. It's the hardest to figure out like what a bad form of a question would actually be. But something like, um, 
questions that are sort of paradoxically and obviously wrong, I think have bad forms. Can God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? Mm. Uh, or questions that would express uh, logical contradictions. Well, those would obviously be have bad forms. Can you make a square circle? Um, there's a sense in which the terms of the question are uh, make it itself unanswerable, um, mm. and that's the most benign form of a bad uh, of a bad form of a question. Um, there are some questions that are just obviously pernicious. So, I was asked once in the context of um, the gay marriage debates by a media reporter. Uh, whether I thought that evangelicals, younger evangelicals, were going to give up their uh, basically gay-hating bigotry. Um, there, there's reasonable disagreements that we can have on that issue, but that's not a very well-worded question. Um, that's a question that, that sends us off in one direction that I don't think is a very helpful or clear direction, even if we disagree on that. So those are the sorts of concerns that I have uh, around, like, how we actually do questioning well. And it's, and it's really me trying to take things I've learned from Thomas and, and criteria around moral acts and just applying it to this area. Well, I want to ask you, I, I want to follow up on the idea of motives behind a question because uh, I could, you know, just off the cuff, imagine scenarios in which questions with bad motives might end up being good questions nonetheless. And I'm thinking in sort of a Gospel of John framework where people are always saying things that are unwittingly holy, even though they are themselves wretches. Uh, I mean, does a bad motive always ruin a good question? Um, it doesn't necessarily ruin a good question in the sense that good can come from it, but it doesn't, I think, make the question itself the right sort of question to ask. Um, I mean, this, this again, for, for, for a question to be good in every respect... Mm -hmm. I think it has to fulfill all of the criteria. Questions can be bad in one respect and good in others. Um, okay. and, th and that's how I view a, a lot of the questions that I would ask, for instance. I think oftentimes I'll ask questions that are um, good intention, well-intentioned, but um, uh, in the wrong setting or the wrong context. And I'll reflect backwards about that and think, I should have asked that question at a different time. And a lot of times I'll just also ask questions with bad intentions. I'm not um, thinking about my neighbor's best interest. I've got some sort of mercenary desire in mind. I'm, I'm doing it because I think that I'm just right and I just want to show them that I'm right. And that's mm -hmm. not good. Um, even if the other questions are the right questions that should be asked in those contexts. Um, and so I, I, I do think that there are a lot of aspects to the mechanics of asking a question. Um, and it really is important to reflect on every aspect of them and, and, and to make sure that we are trying as much as possible to, to do it right. All right. Yeah, so I, and tell me if I'm getting you wrong here, but it seems like what you're doing when you set up these evaluative criteria for questions is not to say that it's a toggle switch to where a question is either good or bad, but you are setting up an apparatus for saying in what ways a question can be good or bad. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, I really want to avoid becoming a question legalist as well. Mm -hmm. um, Tell I, me what that would mean. So those criteria are there to 
help us reflect on what we're doing so that we can do it better. But I don't think that we should run around um, clubbing people over the head for their bad questions or for asking <laughs> questions in the wrong ways. There are some times where, you know, pastorally we need to sit down with people and say, these the way in which you're putting these questions, here's what it seems like you're going after, and that's a real problem. Um, but, you know, I, I really want to underscore that um, uh, I think the gospel and uh, the grace that God gives to us does in one sense liberate us to ask the questions that we have, even if they aren't sort of optimally formed or asked mm -hmm. with the purest of intentions. Um, and that as we go through that process, we'll, we'll be subjected to a, a sort of purifying of our desires and a purifying of our practices uh, so that we'll get better with it uh, over time. All right. One of the another one of the concepts uh, that fascinated me in your book is this idea of intellectual homelessness. Or, yeah, intellectual homelessness. That's what I was going for. Uh, you talk about this in chapter five of your book, uh, and you and the question that I have for you is: Do you imagine that state of intellectual homelessness more as a phase that one encounters at some point in life and then passes on, or is this something that is inherent in human existence? across the entire span of it? Uh, or is it another one of those evaluative criteria that uh, you're going to tell me is for the sake of evaluation, not for a toggle switch? Hmm. That is such a good question. Um, oh, stop buttering me up, Anderson. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Sorry. Um, no, it really is. Um, I, I tend to think of it... Um, I mean, I, I really want to split the difference and say both a phase and a permanent condition. Um, I think I probably have thought about it under both those aspects okay. at various points, in part because um, there are, for many people, certain educational opportunities and contexts that they go through where that are just genuinely unsettling to how they see the world. Um, mm -hmm. And they throw what we think up into chaos, and um, we just feel like the whole thing is strange. We don't have a sense of here's you know where we stand. Um, here's sort of where our home is going to be with respect with respect to intellectual outlooks. Um, as we get older, I think it's maybe this is wrong, but it seems easier from uh, 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 for people to um, forget that sort of unsettledness that they might have felt at one point and to um, just view the world as entirely stable and their outlook as um, uh, sort of completely comprehending everything in the world. And so they, they feel more at home in the world than they should. Um, and this is where I want to say, like, it is something of a permanent condition, this intellectual homelessness. Um, until the eschaton, when we see finally, um, I think there is going to be uh, uh, um, a sense that even in our intellectual pursuits, uh, we've not yet arrived. There's further to explore, further to understand, 
and um, the home that we live in, uh, the, the intellectual home, the intellectual houses that we uh, erect and, and that we look at the world out of, um, that those are sort of constantly uh, being reevaluated and in danger of being torn down. It's not very clear. I really, I really do want to maintain something like an openness, though, to um, the possibility that someone could come along uh, and talk me out of, say, my Christian commitments. Oh, sure. No, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I mean, since I teach English majors a fair bit, I actually have a fair bit of fun with this because a lot of times they will come to one of my upper division literature classes thinking I'm the sophisticated English major and no book is going to shake me up at this point. Uh, and then I give them Goethe's Faust, and I, I'll admit a bit of vicious enjoyment in watching their <laughs> worlds fall apart. So I, uh, I, I, I certainly understand the, and I, and I wonder, and, and you know, I'll, I'll admit my own vices all day long. I like uh, Mrs. Koklakova in Brothers Karamazov. I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I can name my vices so precisely. Uh, <laughs> but is there a certain vice in the outlook that says, with all that I have seen and all that I've experienced? nothing can now shake me up. Is that a kind of intellectual pride, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. Um, on the other hand, I don't want to go so far as to say um, that I'm necessarily always going to be shaken up, um, that the world is just the sort of place um, where homelessness is a structural condition of it. Um, uh, okay, are you saying that, or are you not saying that? I don't want to say the that. negatives there. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, there were too many doubles. <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to say that the world is the sort of place where uh, we're always going to be shaken up, where 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 we're always going to be um, intellectually homeless. Okay, so, uh, you, so you dodge my dairy dodge trap. I really do want to. Uh, <laughs> uh, I really do, in part because I think like. Knowledge is the real thing. I think we can have stable knowledge. I think we can have stable knowledge here and now such that we can be really confident about um, our commitments, even if there is the possibility that um, we might be wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why it's the, the, uh, uh, the subtitle is a book about questioning and the confidence of faith. Um, uh, confidence is not... Not the sense, not not a sort of sense of invulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, I I view intellectual confidence as a recognition of one's own vulnerability, one the, the, one's own intellectual vulnerability, even um, combined with a sense that such invulnerabilities are not um, necessarily overwhelming or fatal or um, necessarily permanent conditions of one's own outlook. Right. Well, that idea of confidence, I thought, was another, and you can tell I, I teach more Aristotle than I do Thomas, but uh, I saw that as another Aristotelian construct going on there, because on the one hand, you have that, uh, what you call pernicious confidence, or not confidence, because that's the good word, uh, the pernicious, arrogant sense that one already has the answers, and then on the other hand, the sort of uh, thoroughgoing but very cheap skepticism uh, that, you know, keeps someone from ever asserting something, although it seldom does for very long, if you know which buttons to push. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, is that another, and if you want to tell me how it's more Thomas than Aristotelian, feel free, <laughs> but is that another Aristotelian moment in there? Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, 
um, it, it, it may be more Thomistically oriented in that um, it really is eschatologically rooted for mm-hmm. me. Um, you know, the, the hope that I think Paul communicates, uh, we are saved by hope. Um, that sense of hope is not a um, fleeting hope. It's not uh, an unstable hope. Um, it is a, a sense that these things have happened in history and they ground our knowledge that certain other things will happen in the future. Um, and they allow us to act meaningfully within that framework, um, to act confidently within that framework. And that eschatological aspect is, to me, really, really important. Um, um, but yeah, that's, that's, it's, I am trying to slide between those two excesses and, and to say a pox on both your houses. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, one one of the other moves uh, that I really really liked is the fact that, uh, and I didn't jot down a, a chapter number for this, but you rehabilitate polemic as a valid Christian practice. Uh, why have polemics gotten a bad rap here lately, and what good are they? Yeah, um, I am a fan of polemics done properly. I think they've gotten a bad rap because a lot of times people don't do them properly. Um, it's very easy for polemics to come off as cheerless, um, as very dour. Uh, I think the last, well, the, the popular narrative about conservative Christians in America over the last decade has been that um, uh, we think the world is falling and we're just throwing up our fists at all of the social changes, all of the um, all of the bad stuff that's going on and, and shouting no to them. Um, that's that, that's <laughs> little, the repu- little Buckley reference there. A yeah, little Buckley reference, right? <laughs> um, you know, that's the popular stereotype. Uh, and it has some, it's, a, it's out there for a reason. I'll put it that way. It's got some legitimacy to it. Um, I want a polemics that is, um, that takes seriously the right arguments um, that, uh, is interested in making the right arguments, but that does it with uh, a smile and a laugh. And that, you know, uses satire in the appropriate places because satire is a, a, an important social, I think, w- w- a way of critiquing people socially. Uh, but that's also rooted in um, genuine friendships with people who see the world differently than we do. Um, and hence is rooted in uh, a real concern for the people who will be and are affected by um, this, the principled stands that we take. Um, and I think the absence of those leads, for, leads to uh, polemics that are really unhealthy and really detached from real life. Well, in our historical moment, the, there's this thing, you might have heard about it, called the Internet. Uh, is this, Once or twice. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I, and this is a question that, that troubles me. I, I certainly don't have an answer to it. I'm hoping maybe you might. Uh, are we in a historical moment where polemics are a lot less capable, even if not entirely incapable, of doing good simply because they are the air that we breathe? Uh, in other words, I mean, in an age that's all irony and polemics, uh, what do we really contribute to things by doing more irony and polemics? 
Yeah, I'm not, I mean, you may be more optimistic about the environment of the internet than I am. Um, <laughs> I, I doubt don't, it. <laughs> I don't think that what most of what happens even rises to the level of irony and polemics. It's just angry screeds. Um, okay, well, uh, uh, tell me a bit more about that distinction. Well, so I think a, uh, I think a proper polemics um, this is why I say, you know, rehabilitating it really matters. You know, a sense of the arguments that are at work and a willingness to engage the arguments, um, and a genuine concern for the people who are affected by these arguments. Um, most mostly, what happens on the internet is not that. Uh, what happens on the internet is um, uh, people in their small niche communities. Um, writing angry things about other people mm -hmm. to other people in their small niche communities um, without ever talking with the other side, as it were. Um, I think polemics needs to be other-oriented. Um, it needs to be sort of lobbed at someone uh, to have an audience that's outside of the community that, is, that where one is defending, that, that one is defending. And that just doesn't happen very much in internet discourse, um, which is why I, th I think it's all sort of gross and disgusting. I mean, so even if even if you were right, um, and these distinctions are sort of silly distinctions that I'm making, I'd still say something like the way to proceed mm. on po on polemics is not to avoid it altogether, but to do it properly um, and to let one's own polemics stand out from the crowd um, rather than letting the, the rampant abuses of the medium stop you from using it at all. Okay. I, think, I think at that point, you know, you're just letting people who don't know how to do these things win, in a sense, and mm -hmm. I'm too curmudgeonly to let them win. I think this is too valuable of, of, of a way of engaging the world to and to wholly give it over to uh, people who don't realize just how good it is and aren't going to use it well all right well first i want to i want to clarify i did not say it was a, a silly distinction i asked you to clarify it <laughs> uh, but second uh, i think it's interesting and i mean from a rhetorical point of view i think that you're right if we are using polemic as a sort of literary critical term to distinguish uh, this textual moment from that textual moment in terms of a broad category of text. Uh, I think there might be a place for the phrase good polemic. Uh, it's interesting, though, and I, and I wonder just on a historical uh, semantics level uh, whether the word polemic has become enough of a devil term that good polemic has become oxymoronic at this point. Hmm. And again, I don't have an answer to that, but it's certainly something I wonder. What's your impression? Yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer either. Um, in in a sense, like I'm really just going to put my head down and do say the things that I think are right to say and that need to be said. Um, I mean, I I've had this conversation with conservative as a term. Mm -hmm. um, conservative as a term has all sorts of ugly connotations to many people, and um, uh, a lot of my friends think that we should just like give up on the term and do something else in part because of, of all of those problems. And I think, well, no, not quite. I'm, I'm going to, um, 
when we come around to the far side and people don't have all of those negative connotations any longer, like we're still going to need a term for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and maybe it's, it is just my conservative impulses where I think we've got a perfectly good word for this polemics. Um, uh-huh. It is a perfectly good practice. Like we ought to just do it and not be so worried about um, the connotations that it gives people, uh-huh. uh, which we can't control, or um, the, envir- the broader structural conditions of the environment that we're doing it in. All right. All I don't right. know. I don't know. No, that's fair enough, and I, and and that's something, of course, I I love you know talking about in terms of you know the historical changes of words, the fact that the Federalist Papers you know pretty unapologetically <laughs> refer to the you know the states you know that would become the United States as the American Empire, yeah, uh, and you know they don't feel any need to apologize for that term, right. uh, but you know if you did that in the 21st century, you would automatically be offending all sorts of political groups, uh, you know, which is one reason people refer to it that way, of course. But, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting set of questions. Well, I'd, I, I want to move on. One of, the, one of the things that troubled me about your book, I'll just put it that way, uh, is that in a few if it's, places... If, what if, now? It's str- if it's stronger than troubled, you can put it stronger than troubled, if you, you know, like, go for it. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure enough, you see, uh, you know, whether I'm misreading you or... Whether I'm not, that's why I'm asking you rather than uh, issuing polemics here. Uh, but in a few places in your book, you make this distinction between uh, good question asking and bad question asking. And in one place, you know, you refer to questions that cause needless scandal. Uh, in another place, you refer to que- uh, questions that are, oh, acts of rebellion rather than acts of inquiry. Uh, and what troubles me, Matt, is that it seems to me that if you make that distinction, either you're going to say that there is some authority figure, and I'm not sure who it would be, who gets to say which questions are good and which are bad, uh, or on the other extreme, uh, you end up going to a sort of individualistic, solipsistic place where you say, as long as you have good intentions in your heart, it can't be a bad question, morally speaking. Uh, tell me about a third way, Matt, because I'm not sure I can articulate one. (laughs) Um, well, I might wonder why we'd be worried about authority figures who would have insight into good questions or bad questions. I mean, if this is a practice, a human practice, uh, inquiring inquiring and searching and asking questions, then some people are going to be wise at it. Uh, some people are going to have insight into it that not everyone else has. And they may be able to point in certain directions and say, you know, to question better, do these things and not those other things. Um, so if the, if the worry is um, uh, that some people will know more about questioning well than others, um, I don't think that's a worry personally. Um, if the worry is that those people then uh, go around smashing people or judging people for asking questions badly and so on, that is a legitimate worry. Um, but then I just think, well, that's, that's, that's a worry regardless of what practice that we're talking about, um, regardless of what activity we're considering. And... Um, 
what we need are wise people who are also good, who have insight into what makes some questions better than others, and are willing to um, counsel without um, making sort of final authoritative claims about uh, what people should do or should not do in this area. All right. All right. Now, the, yeah. uh, and again, and again I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to follow up on this and get some more clarity on it. I mean, I mean yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll just go ahead and go that solipsistic direction that it seems that this swings to if you don't go the authoritarian direction. Namely, if you say that, you know, the wise questioner has to be discerned, it's not something that is given in a formal authority structure, does that, does that not swing one back into the solipsistic realm, you know, the wise questioners in the eye of the beholder, in other words? I, I don't think so. I mean, um, I hope not, because I don't like that. Um, uh, I think the wise questioner should be able to give arguments and reasons. Maybe this is just my um, uh, platonic approach coming out, but I think the wise questioner should be able to give reasons and arguments for why certain questions are bad or less fitting than other questions. Um, and why asking questions in some ways is more fitting than asking questions in other ways. Um, it, it, you know, we, we like to think that authority in those contexts um, is in, sort of happens when there are no reasons for it. And authority properly executed and, and used, particularly with other sort of rational adults who are equals, um, I think entails that the authority figure be able to give reasons for their judgment, reasons for their decision, or reasons for their counsel or advice. And that, I think, helps us avoid the, the, the solipsistic trap where it is just up to people to, to decide for themselves which questions are the right ones and which ones aren't. Um, I mean, I, I really think actually that if we don't find some way of discriminating between good questioning and bad questioning, you know, people do just want it to be entirely about their emotions, about their intentions. Like, well, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't... Um, want to do these things. And in any other human practice, in any other sort of moral field, that's just grossly insufficient. We don't judge um, what people do simply on their intentions. That's certainly an important criteria, but it's not the only criteria. Um, and it, can, it just can't be in this area either. It's wholly insufficient. All right, all right. Well, another part, and and this part didn't just trouble me, it actually irritated me a bit, but it's only because you quoted a passage from C.S. Lewis that's been a burr under my saddle for years now. Uh, but on pages 100 and 101 of the book, uh, you quote from C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, which which is one of those books that just gets me in a fighting mood every time I return to it, uh, where he says that first causes or principles are, philosophically speaking, not to be seen through. Uh, and here's why it puts a burr under my saddle, Matt, because my own, my own training is in rhetorical theory, so I immediately start thinking of Kenneth Burke, who, who gets picked up by Richard Weaver, 
and their discussions of God terms and devil terms. Uh, so I'm going to play Socrates here on you, or, or Richard Weaver, if you prefer. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you what we should do if we run into a principle that's no good. Um, what, what, can you give me an example of a principle that we might run into? That oh, would sure. Be I mean, you know, in, in Richard Weaver's uh, essay, uh, Ultimate Terms in Contemporary Rhetoric, uh, he talks about a term like progress, uh, which in certain circles is an unassailable first cause. Uh, if you can demonstrate that something is teleologically related to progress, it becomes unassailable, and any judgment of its badness is therefore invalid because it is progressive. Yeah. Um, so I don't... So here's... I mean, this is interesting because... I doubt what Lewis has in mind is um, uh, contextualized by communities, per se. Um, I mean, he's, I think, in this context, got moral norms yeah. in mind. And, and by the way, I mean, the argument of that book seems to militate against cultural context. Yeah, so... It's the whole appendix to the book is these lists of, you know, universal moral principles. Right. Um and so, right, and he basically lists them all and says, hey, look, all these different cultures are basically the same on these things. Right, which gives um, me a rash. Why does it give you a rash? <laughs> I think it's right. So as someone with uh, sympathies uh, with a natural law type mm. approach to the world, um, uh, the, the going behind cultural context is less troubling to me than I think it sounds like it is for you. Um, I do think, though, your point about what do we do when um, certain communities that take their first principles as givens come into conflict, mm -hmm. um, and how do we navigate that situation? Um, so I, I, I do think about this a lot. I think this is a major problem. Um, I think one thing that can happen is that the um, we expand outward uh, sort of from the first principles and um, make arguments about what the world looks like um, based on those first principles mm -hmm. and make arguments for the um, quality of one world over the other. Um, so if you take the progress example, mm -hmm. um, there are lots of ways in which that as a first principle um, generates a world where I think abhorrent things happen in unbounded ways that not taking progress as an unassailable first principle um, doesn't lead to. So there's kind of a reductio that can be done um, but but it's but it's hard to do and it's and it's and it's hard to get people to question their first principles and whether or not they're actually um, generating the sort of worlds that uh, they want to live in, really, okay. that, and that everyone should want to live in. Well, let me pose a, a follow up. I mean, by doing that, are you not doing precisely the seeing through principles that Lewis says you oughtn't to do? No, I don't think so. Um, not necessarily. Um, 
because the, the structure of justification might be different. So we're not necessarily, um, we're providing justification for these first principles that's derived from them, but that's different than finding something behind the first principles that we are um, justifying them based on. Give me an example. Yeah, this is, I mean, um, <laughs> so I'm going ad hoc here. I, like, I'm something like a foundationalist. So uh, I want to, I, want, I really want to be able to affirm uh, what's going on here in Lewis. Um, well, of course you do. It's in your book. Yeah, of course I do. It's in my book. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, uh, so... With the moral examples, right? Um, pro I mean, progress is a hard one. I, I actually don't think that progress, I, it wouldn't fit my criteria for a first principle at all. Um, it's just not basic enough. Um, a moral first principle, something like uh, one ought not do evil. Um, or do do harm to another unintentionally, or or one not one ought not take innocent human life. Um, oh, that seems like a composite statement if I've ever heard one. But go ahead, go I mean, ahead. I, 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 th this is your interview. I, I need to quit being such a booger. Go ahead. No, wait. So 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 so, so what, what what's wrong with one ought not take innocent human life? Well, because a few things going on here. First of all, you know what counts as innocence. Uh, sure. That's gonna that's going to differ depending on which philosophical universe you're starting from. Uh, you know, uh, one ought not to take. Uh, again, you know whether that is a universal principle after a Kantian or even an Augustinian manner, or if that is something that is you know imposed by the weak upon the strong in a you know Friedrich Nietzsche matrix. It just seems to me that when we're talking about principles we're always talking about something that's up for grabs and, uh, and 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 you're starting to educate me here you're starting to convince me almost thou persuadest me to be a foundationalist <laughs> uh but i need more so say more and i'll try to keep my mouth shut for a second here no so that's that's really helpful so um uh it is true that that could be justified by a variety of systems and it's absolutely true that um the question of who counts as innocent in any specific situation might be a real question. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't impinge upon the, the, the fact, it seems to me, that the norm at work itself can be grasped um, as a sort of basic moral norm. Um, so we can ask in, in certain situations, does you know, Joe count as, in, as an innocent human life? And we may say yes, we may say no, but neither of the, the answers to that question have anything to do with um, whether one ought not do that. Is a true statement about our responsibilities and, and, and obligations in this moral universe. Similarly, that moral norm might be justified on Kantian grounds or um, Thomistic grounds or, um, I mean, you said Nietzschean's strong against the weak. Um, Whatever the surrounding cluster of propositions is, um, it, that surrounding cluster might 
have a lot to do with how we see the, the context where that norm um, gets sort of discerned and used or applied. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we can still grasp the meaning of those norms, uh, the meaning of the norm itself outside of those, that broader context and, um, and, and abide by it. Mm-hmm. And this is where, like, I do think the list at the end of um, the abolition of man is reasonably instructive. It's 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 illuminating to see that despite all the cultural diversity and historical differences and so on, um, that there is a relatively similar moral code across so many different cultures. All right, all right. Well, listeners, I am not convinced yet, but if you are, and if you think I'm being a jerk to Matt, feel free to write in, <laughs> let me know about this. I do want to ask a, a couple more questions before we start heading for the exit here. One of them is a, a biblical studies question. Um, one of the things I noticed about your approach to biblical texts uh, is that you tend to treat the lament psalms especially, but also certain passages in Job, certain passages in the prophets, uh, as sort of... And, and if I'm getting this wrong, feel free to tell me I'm getting it wrong and then tell me how I should have read it, uh, as minor moments of psychological lapse where the scriptural author lapses into accusing God uh, but then sort of recovers his footing and, you know, utters confident sayings at the end. Uh, it's a very different approach from the way that I tend to read those lament psalms and dear heavens, especially the speeches of Job. Uh, tell me a little bit about that hermeneutical approach that you employ in the book and if i've gotten you entirely wrong start out telling me how i have so i wouldn't personally describe those moments as minor psychological lapses um and if i came across that way in the book then um, I, I, then that's terrible, and I apologize, and I'll go revisit that to, to make sure <laughs> that I do that better. Like I said, I probably got you wrong, so correct me. Um, I think those moments are um, close to the lifeblood of the faith in that they um, teach us what the... Um, what the boundaries are for the expression of our lament and the expression of our doubts before God. Um, and those boundaries are incredibly permissive. I mean, Psalm, is it Psalm 88? I mean, there's just nothing there at the end. Um, and I don't right. do, and I don't do enough in the book. I, I don't actually think that I mentioned Psalm 88 and that's a, that's a, uh, a mistake on my part. Um, um, I mean, it's important that in Psalm 88, it's a liturgical Psalm. And so he's, he's, He's saying this in the, the, the context with a presupposition of um, that someone is listening to him. Certainly. Uh, and that's massively important. But, you know, I, one of the favorite, like, based on Kindle underlining and so on, um, <laughs> one of people's favorite lines in the book is where I blame the rise of doubt on the absence of genuine lamentation within our churches. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I would um, appreciate that bit. So I, I, I do try as much as possible to um, 
to view, to, to sort of incorporate space within a whole life for those moments. But I think it is interesting that um, the New Testament seems to view such moments not as aberrations per se, where aberrations means statistical aberrations. It may be the case that most people within the church go through a season like that at one point or another. Um, but normatively, mm-hmm. in terms of what, um, what our confidence is supposed to look like, I, I don't think that that's it. I think that the trajectory or the, 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 the um, exhortation of Scripture goes in a different direction mm-hmm. than encouraging or fostering the conditions under which um, uh, the lamentations occur. And I think that's really important because I think we do these days um, tend to encourage, uh, I think many people want to encourage um, people to have those sort of psychological travails about Mm -hmm. God and to me, that's uh, a big part of that is an overly emotivized faith mm-hmm. um, where we've got um, all the sort of hangovers of romanticism <laughs> without, without the rich sort of um, either liturgical context or intellectual context to, to guide and direct those emotional responses. Mm-hmm. And so our, our emotive experiences around doubt and faith and so on tend to be, I think, unhinged and undirected to begin with. Um, and so there are a lot of structural conditions about the evangelical world where I just, I just get more nervous. I don't, think, I don't think that what many of us feel today in the moments where we um, read, say, Psalm 88 is similar to what they would have felt because they didn't, they they weren't in a culture where romanticism had been a thing, mm-hmm. um, and so I really I really like want to be sensitive here and say something like even our even our experiences of doubt and of emotional upheaval those themselves I think need to be sanctified and purified, um, such that we're bringing those emotional experiences more in line with uh, potentially what what's going on in scripture. All right. I'll, I'll talk for a minute. I, you mentioned Peter Rollins's book, Insurrection, which I, I myself read a couple of years ago. Uh, talk for just a minute about how your approach to, for instance, uh, the last word of Christ on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, uh, differs from his approach. Yeah, so Rollins, I mean, um, I'm trying to remember where I talked about that in the book to pull it up and oh, look. Oh, I didn't jot down a page number. I'm sorry. It's quite all right. Um so yeah, Rollins' basic approach is that um, that claim, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, um, is uh, essentially um, a, an expression of doubt that becomes the paradigmatic moment of the Christian faith. Yeah. And um, he you know, dismisses the notion... Basically, that um, 
Jesus has anything in mind beyond uh, of Psalm 22 beyond just the expression of doubt. So there's one mm. stream of interpretation that Jesus is uttering something like a victory, a cry of victory there, because Psalm 22 goes on um, from what he quotes. And, um, and frankly, I, you know, I, I think that the notion that what Jesus is doing is uttering a cry of victory is something is, is, is right. Um, while recognizing that the cry of victory, uh, is just sounds a lot like doubt. Um, these two things are not, um, I don't, I don't understand why Rollins is resistant to the language of victory there. Um, yeah, I, 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 I just don't understand it personally. Well, it's uh, interesting because I, I, I feel like now I'm the one sort of skating the middle path here because I, 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 like I said, I, I reviewed Insurrection a couple years ago and it didn't particularly impress me, but uh, I'm inclined to say that you know Jesus cuts off the psalm where he does for a reason and that the affirmation of confidence happens in the resurrection, not in the moment of the crucifixion. But I will also say that you know my my theology of the cross does tend to be a little bit more dour than a lot of evangelicals. So I, <laughs> um, it's an interesting bit. Yeah. So I and and this is where I tend to think that. Um, so one of one of the basic theological approaches that I picked up somewhere along the way is that um, what we get in the resurrection. Mm-hmm clarifies and confirms what happens on the cross. So oh, interesting. Okay. So for Jesus, um, the historical trajectory goes one direction, right? Uh, Good mm-hmm. Friday to Holy Saturday to Easter. Mm-hmm. But, but for us, it goes back the other direction. We start, in a sense, with the resurrection, um, with the new life of the resurrection, and mm-hmm. that illumines our grasp of the cross and what's going on on the cross. Um, uh, so that, you know, our resurrected life, we can speak of it in uh, suffering terms uh, mm-hmm. and without impinging upon the uniqueness of um, Christ's atonement and, and Christ's sacrifice. Um, because for us... Um, we, we, we get to the cross through the resurrection. Um, so in that sense, for, for, for faith, I think that the, the, the cross itself reveals the victory of the resurrection okay. um, and can't, in one sense, be properly understood without that. So, I mean, a question for Rollins would be, is if Good Friday never happened, or excuse me, if Easter Sunday never happened, um, would that dramatically change the meaning of what Jesus says on the cross for him such mm-hmm. that, and, and I think I suspect for Rollins, he'd still say something like that. That moment of doubt is still the, the sort of paradigmatic thing. Whereas for me, what happens on Sunday changes what Jesus says on the cross, um, uh, sort of changes its theological content and its meaning such that we, we can hear victory there. All right, all right. 
Well, Matt, we've been dealing with my own little bag of questions here, but I do want to let you take a swing at an idea or an argument from your book that I've neglected in my question set. Uh, the listeners are yours, Anderson. What would you tell them? Man, that's uh, we've covered so much. That I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that I have much more to say. I'm not sure anyone needs to read the book, in fact, anymore because, uh, <laughs> because we've gone through so much. Um, now, look, I, the thing that I would say, for me, this is a very um, personal book. Um, uh, it's, it's certainly the most personal thing I've ever written. And um, I, think, I think one of the main ideas, I, don't, I even hesitate to call it an idea because it seems so much more powerful and overwhelming than that, but oh, don't, one, don't underestimate ideas. It's true. Um, <laughs> I think one of the main truths that stands beneath the whole thing is that um, the good is um, deeper and more powerful and more overwhelming than we give it credit for being. Um, and it's hard to get ourselves to a point where in our questioning we think of our questions as very little and the and the goods which we are pursuing as very big um and orienting our lives away from sort of asking our questions because they're ours towards being entranced by these goods that are before us and just in one sense, laying ourselves aside and seeking to understand these things um, is very, very difficult. But, but, but that, I think, is close to the heart of what I'm trying to do uh, throughout, throughout the whole thing. Very good. I think we can go home on that. Listeners, uh, you've been listening to the Christian Humanist Profiles. I've been talking with Matthew Lee Anderson. Uh, author of The End of Our Exploring, uh, and also of Earthen Vessels. And I forgot to tell you at the outset, Matt, I, I gave copies of Earthen Vessels to all of the members of Emmanuel College's English department for Christmas this year. Uh, so I, I expect that we'll have uh, some interesting conversations when we get back to session in January. Well, I hope they're good conversations. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're all still friends based on that. <laughs> but... Uh, in the meantime, as you enjoy this over your Christmas holidays, uh, this is Nathan Gilmore for Christian Humanist Profiles signing off. Thank you, listeners. Mm-hmm.